This podcast is sponsored by The Christian Way of Life, the new book from Eric Alexander and Alliance Publishing. Find it online at reformedresources.org. What is the Christian way of life, and how can we live it? Some may reply with a list of do's and don'ts, but we need far more than a lecture. We need a Savior. In his new book, The Christian Way of Life, Eric Alexander leads readers down the radiant corridors of Romans 12 through 15, showing how the gospel of redeeming grace empowers us for holy and acceptable service to God. There is no secret in Christian living in a wasting world, only a simple truth. It is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Alliance Publishing is excited to share this new book book with you. Order your copies directly from the Alliance's online resource center, reformedresources.org. That's reformedresources.org. Also available on Amazon in paperback and ebook. Order your copy today. Welcome to Hear the Word of God the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Reverend Eric Alexander. The vision that Isaiah now has is the ultimate triumph of God over every foe and the worship which is stimulated in believing hearts because of God's triumph. Now, as I was saying, there is a lot of similarity between these chapters and the book of Revelation for the simple reason that they deal with the same kind of themes. For example, with the victory of God in His final triumph over all His foes, the destruction of death and Satan. Very significantly you find in these chapters that death is going to be destroyed. Verse 8 of chapter 25, he will swallow up death forever. You know that is what Paul is quoting in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, death is swallowed up in victory as it is written. Now here is the place where death is to be swallowed up, where resurrection, the resurrection of the body, is to be the experience of God's people. Did you ever hear somebody say to you that in the Old Testament there was never anything about the resurrection of the body of the believer? Well, look at chapter 26, verse 19. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise, You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Here is the great Old Testament testimony, which you get also, of course, in the book of Job, to the resurrection of the believer's body. And that, of course, is one of the great themes of the book of Revelation. The great supper or banquet which will be held in glory to celebrate God's triumph, of which we read in chapter 25, verse 6, the marriage supper of the Lamb, as the book of Revelation calls it. And all of this we find in Isaiah's little apocalypse. Let's look at the first example of this worship that is stimulated by the great theme of God's final triumph over all his enemies in chapter 25. Because in the first few verses you could discover a definition of worship 
as a heart to exalt God and to glory in who He is and what He has done. Now that could be a rough-running definition of what worship is. It is a heart given to the believer to exalt God and to glory in who He is and what He has done. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You and praise Your name, for in perfect faithfulness You have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. And then He launches out into an exposition of what God has done. You will notice the two ways in chapter 25 at the beginning in which God is glorious and to be praised. First of all, and to our surprise perhaps, He is glorious in His demolition of the strongholds of the enemy. And that's Isaiah's first great note. Verse 2, immediately He has exalted God's name and praised His perfect faithfulness. You have done marvelous things. The first thing he speaks of that God has done in verse 2 is, you have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin. Now, in the demolition of all his enemies, in everything that the city of man speaks of, in its demolition, God is honored and praised because it has risen up against Him to defy Him and to set all its resources against Him. And that certainly has been true in Isaiah's time and will be true right through the succeeding history about which he writes and to the end of time, the end of the age. It's a very interesting thing, as we'll be seeing in a moment, that throughout the whole of Scripture, there is a very real sense in which the history that Scripture deals with is a tale of two cities, the city of man and the city of God, the city of Babylon, as it is called in the book of Revelation in that apocalypse, and the new Jerusalem which God is building, the one represents everything that man is able to do. Human resources, human wisdom, human skill, human pride, human glory. That's Babylon. And the message of the book of Revelation is that Babylon comes to a disastrous end. And here Isaiah is prophesying the same thing. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin. And the new Jerusalem stands for God's construction, the city whose walls are salvation, whose inhabitants are God's redeemed people, whose riches are the grace of God in Jesus Christ. These are the two cities, and all history in that sense is a tale of these two cities. The new Jerusalem is going to arise from heaven out of God and is going to be revealed in all its glory. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. And Babylon and all that it stands for as a way of life opposed to God 
will one day certainly, ultimately perish. Now God reveals his glory in the utter destruction of that kingdom of darkness at the end of the age. Now, we have said once or twice in our study of Isaiah that the way that Isaiah speaks of this, for example, here the foreigner stronghold, verse 2, is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you because they will be left, as it were, breathless before the vision of God in His judgment. But the reason that this ultimate vindication of God and the fulfillment not only of His promises to His people, but His threats to the ungodly, the reason that that is important is, of course, that righteousness is ultimately going to be established, and sin is ultimately going to be defeated. Now, in the current contemporary world, you would sometimes ask questions about that. It appears as if unrighteousness is thriving, as though godless people are prospering with impunity, and as though the righteous are suffering, and the cause of God is in some areas of the world waning. Now, what Isaiah is telling us is exactly what the book of Revelation was written to assure the people of God of, and that is that it was only a matter of time until God would make bare His mighty arm and triumph over all His foes. Now, that is why Isaiah concentrates first of all, on the demolition of the strongholds of the enemy. But God is not only glorious in that strange ministry of judgment. He is glorious in His protection of His own people, verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 25. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in His distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. You will notice how Isaiah uses so many metaphors, metaphors that would be familiar to people in the ancient East, where people were in need of refuge, the homeless without shelter, a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress a shelter from the storm, a shadow from the burning sun. And God provides all of this that His children need. It is a picture of God as the total answer to all the needs of His children. He protects them in the way that a shadow uh, protects somebody from the heat of the burning sun. You stand in the shadow of a cloud, for example, and it protects you from the burning sun. Well, there is the figure in verse 5. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. And here he pictures the poor and needy believer trusting in God, discovering him, as it were, standing between the sun and himself. 
and here is the protecting God full of care. I wonder if you've ever watched, as I remember seeing in a hot country on one occasion, a father standing over a child on an open beach. If you've ever been in a hot country, you will know how people flee uh, for the trees and for the shade of the tree in a burning hot day, especially if there are few of them. Everybody is going for them. You ever been there? They park their cars under the tree to keep them cool. They try to get away from the sun. Only mad dogs and Englishmen and a few Scotsmen into the bargain go for the sun and open their themselves to its rays. But people who really have discovered its dangers. They want to get shelter from it. And I remember seeing a child sitting in the beach crying because there was no shade from the sun and the father stood between the sun and the child and provided a shade from the burning heat. Now, that's a figure of speech that's used frequently in Scripture, but here it is in Isaiah. God standing between the source of threat and evil and his children and providing a shade for them in the midst of it. Now he is a refuge for the needy, a shelter for the storm-tossed, and a shadow for the exhausted. Now the great final feast or heavenly banquet which God will prepare is to celebrate all that God is and all that God has done for His people. And this is the point of the uh, description from verse 6 onwards of this amazing feast that God is going to prepare on this mountain, that is on Mount Zion. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of, of wines. And that, of course, is um, a prophecy of that occasion that's described in the book of Revelation when God is going to prepare this marriage supper which will celebrate His triumph and the union of believers with His Son, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it is this uh, final uh, feast in glory which the Lord's Supper foreshadows for us. Do you remember how Jesus uh, tells us in Matthew 26 and 29 when he is taking the cup and instituting the Lord's Supper? He says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, that great feast is the ultimate celebration of God's triumph to which the whole of history is moving forward, which there are pointers to in Scripture like the Lord's Supper. And here Isaiah foresees it. Now, there are two things which are to be celebrated at that great feast. One is the destruction of death, and the other is the vindication of faith. 
Notice how Isaiah tells us about this. On this mountain, verse 7, that is the mountain where the Lord Almighty will prepare this feast, he will finally destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. Now, scholars think that probably what Isaiah is referring to is the shroud of death. That is the covering that is used in death. However that may be, I think there are other possibilities. He certainly goes on, and it would be a suitable introduction to the beginning of verse 8, where he says he will swallow up death forever, and the sovereign Lord will come to deal with the ultimate sign, the outward sacrament of sin, which is, of course, physical death. You will realize that death is an ugly intruder into God's universe. Death was never part of God's design, either for the world he created or for man in it. It is part of the curse that came with creation. The day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Satan said, you will not die. And death entered into the world, Paul tells us, with sin. And it is this physical death which is the last enemy. That, of course, is why it brings so much grief and sorrow. That is why it produces anguish in the human heart, even in the believing human heart. Because it is the last enemy that we face. And it is that last enemy which Jesus has destroyed by his death and resurrection and which will publicly, ultimately, be vanquished when he returns again in glory. So that in heaven, in this place where this feast is being prepared, there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. And you will notice that these things are reserved for glory. We do not experience any of these absences while we are here in this world in the flesh. Here in this world we do have death and sorrow and pain and crying. But on that day, do you notice, they will be done away. And even as we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 17, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Now, do you see that amazing picture? Here is the sovereign Lord of glory, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is stooping down to perform this task that we think of as the task that an ordinary father would perform or a mother for their children. When they are weeping tears, the parent will come with a handkerchief and pat them on the head and wipe the tears away, and God is going to do that. Every semblance and every cause of sorrow. 
he will deal with on that day. Because he will destroy death, it will be swallowed up forever. Now you will remember how Paul speaks of that. Oh, death, where is your sting, he says. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now the great picture in the Bible of what death is, is that it is the swallower. It swallows up people. Death is pictured in Scripture. We don't have time to look at it, but you go through the Bible and you will find it. It is pictured as a great monster, as it were, with open mouth, consuming, swallowing up people. And the grave is pictured like that too, swallowing people up. But here death itself is swallowed up by God, and therefore consumed. He will swallow up death forever. But the other thing that is celebrated at that feast, and what a celebration that is going to be. Have you ever thought of that? No more death. Death is vanquished, and everything that death implies is vanquished. And on that day at that marriage supper, what a thing to be celebrating. I was at a marriage supper on Saturday in St. Andrews, and it was a great thing to celebrate the union of two Christian young people like that. That brought us immense joy. But you know, these occasions are the palest possible shadows compared with that great marriage supper when we shall be celebrating something that the universe does not have music to celebrate. That death is vanquished. But notice in the second place, it is the vindication of faith that is going to be celebrated. In verse 9, In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. Now, do you remember that throughout Isaiah, that was the real question that was at issue, you see. The real issue was, whom shall we trust? And Ahaz, the king of Judah, said, we had better trust Assyria. Assyria is the strong friend that we can make an alliance with. And Isaiah comes to them and says, Trust in the Lord. Do not put your confidence in the flesh. Now here, says Isaiah, look ahead. Look to the last and great day when we shall be celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. What is the second thing we will celebrate? Not only the destruction of death, but the vindication of faith. Surely this is our God. Can you see it? People with the veil taken off their faces, the cataract removed from their eyes, and they see clearly now, this is God, they say. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. In other words, they are saying we were right. We put our trust in the right place. There were occasions perhaps when we trembled and were fearful. There were times when we wondered if it wouldn't have been better for us in the land of Egypt. But, oh, we were right to trust the Lord. Thank God we trusted Him, they're saying. 
literally it is. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. We waited for Him. And He saved us. And many of them had waited a long time for this day. And now they are saying, Thank God we did not put our trust anywhere else. You know, it's a very important thing for us to learn that lesson before we pass on. A very important lesson to learn that throughout all time and eternity, nobody has ever said, This is the Lord we have found that having trusted him, he disappointed us. In heaven, there never will be such a phrase. But hell is the world of disappointed hopes. That's what it's all about, really. Heaven is the vindication of faith. Now, chapter 26 is an example of the kind of worship which is stimulated by God's being and works in a broader sense. It brings us to a psalm of praise which uh, Isaiah sings. And you notice, let me just mention them to you, the things that it does. They are marks of true worship. And before I do, my dear friend and colleague, the church officer, has provided not perhaps the most aged wine, but the best of bars. Look at the features of this worship. First, it exalts God. That's true all the way through chapter 26. He is exalted as the God of salvation, the rock of ages. Verse 4, the faithful God, the righteous or upright one. Verse 7, what this psalm of worship does is to exalt God. But at the beginning of the chapter, it exalts God as the one who is building a new Jerusalem. Notice, we have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts you. Now that is this great picture of the city that God is building, the new Jerusalem, Savior if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am, let the world deride and pity, I will glory in thy name. And that's what Isaiah in this psalm is doing. He is exalting God and glorying in his name. Notice the second thing he does in the course of his worship. 
He exhorts God's people to trust God also. Now, that's a significant thing as part of the worship that Isaiah offers to God. Trust in the Lord forever. He has just been singing. You will keep in perfect peace. Now, that's worship directed to God, him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. But then he begins to sing, as it were, to his fellow believers. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. That is, he is the rock of ages, as our hymn says. That's where the phrase comes from. Now, it's a very interesting thing that you find the psalmist doing this. Isaiah himself is probably the psalmist. And he is singing in the midst of his worship, addressing his fellow believers. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is the rock of ages. Now, that's a very interesting thing. Let me uh, make a confession to you. I used to say <coughs> to people, and I used to think myself, and I actually once wrote an article about this. I don't know if it's still in existence. I suspect not. But I, I once wrote an article about worship and hymns in worship for the Graduates Fellowship magazine. And it was really on this burden that I had, that all true hymns of worship should address God, and that they were only worship hymns if they really addressed God and were taken up with God and His honor and glory. But you know, I have to confess to you that I've changed my mind about that, and I think I was actually wrong and I think I was also unbiblical for this reason, that if you think about it, in the Psalms, in the course of worship, the psalmist sometimes, although I think it's basically true that he is addressing God and is taken up with his glory, he begins to address other people. And suddenly, as he is magnifying God, he says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. So he is addressing his fellow believers. What is he doing? He is taken up with God's glory, but he is concerned with communal worship, you see. And he recognizes the need to draw other people into this. He cannot be absorbed with God without desiring that others would be also. And he exhorts his fellow believers to do likewise. You get that all through the Psalms. You just need to look at them and you'll find. He sometimes addresses himself in the course of his worship. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God and you will yet have praise of cause to praise him for the help of his countenance. He also comes and says to his fellow believers, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And then he begins to tell them about what God is like. He is the, uh, our God, and we are the people of his pasture. And he begins to expand upon this. Now, we do the same in our hymns. Have you noticed how some of our great hymns do that? Stand up and bless the Lord, we say, ye people of his choice. Now, we're addressing one another in that. We sometimes address ourselves. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, who like me his praise should sing. 
and we are addressing one another. Now, the psalmist is exhorting here in Isaiah's psalm God's people to trust Him. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is the rock eternal. And he goes on to describe some of the glories of God that make Him worthy of the trust of His people. Through to verse 7. Then in verses 8 and 9, he expresses the desires and longings of the worshiper's soul. Notice how that's part of his worship. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, verse 8, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. There is the psalmist expressing the desires and longings of his heart after God. And then you notice he also, in the course of his worship, in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 26, expresses his distress over the carelessness of God that he sees in the world around him. Verse 11, for example, or verse 10, Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. What is he saying there? Well, he is saying, Lord, how our hearts grieve over the unrepentant godlessness of the world round about us. Have you ever noticed how often that comes through in the Psalms? Not just a sense of joy and worship and overflowing, but like Jeremiah, mine eyes run down with tears because men do not keep thy law. Do you ever know that in worshiping God? A sense of grief and sorrow because although grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. He expresses his desires and longings, his distress and burden to the Lord. You notice how he also extols God's lordship over the whole of life and confesses how his own heart has been divided so often. Verse 12, Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. There's the psalmist in confession, you see. There's an element in worship. He is expressing to God his confession of heart that other lords besides you have ruled over us. But now, he says, your name alone do we honor. It is the psalmist's great desire in the present, in other words, to have God as the solitary Lord of his life. And then he worships God for the certainty of his ultimate victory over death. Verse 19, your dead will live 
their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. And here the song of worship finishes with an onward look to the coming day of God, both in judgment and in blessing. And then chapter 27, which is the close of this little apocalypse of Isaiah's, speaks of the restoration. It's a song of restoration, speaking of the restoration of God's people uh, on the metaphor of a vineyard. You notice in the beginning of verse 2, in that day, it's one of the great phrases of this particular part of um, Isaiah's apocalypse. Verse 1, in that day the Lord will punish with his sword. Verse 2, in that day sing about a fruitful vine. Verse 12, in that day the Lord will thresh. Verse 13, and in that day a great trumpet will sound. It's the account really, this 27th chapter, of the restoration of God's people. Verse 2, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. Now you may remember in chapter 5 of Isaiah, if you were with us then, there is another picture of the vineyard where God looks at his people and he says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have done to it? I dug a trench round about it. I have lavished care upon it. I have watered it. I have pruned it. He says, what more could I have done? God is the vine dresser, you see, that was not done to my vineyard. And now he says, why then does my vineyard produce wild grapes instead of sweet grapes? Why is there not fruit after all that I have lavished of my love and care upon my people? But here in chapter 27, he returns to the theme of the vineyard. And what he says is, I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. And here there are no briars or thorns. There are no enemies in the vineyard. And God's purpose is to bring restoration to his people. And that he will do. He strikes down her enemies. He destroys all who are opposed to his people. And in that day, God will restore them to himself. Now, many people think that this refers to the people of Israel particularly and to God's purpose for the Jewish nation. And I'm sure that there is partly that note in what Isaiah is saying. But there is a wider application that God is the God who has set his heart upon his people and will see them through to the very end of the day. 
He will neither leave them nor forsake them until He has done in them everything that He has designed to do. And that's really the point of this little apocalypse, as it is the point of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, you see, was written to a discouraged, needy, suffering church. And it was written in order to assure them that the last word was with God, that He would take His people through to an ultimate triumph, and that the thing that really mattered was to keep your eyes on Him and to put your trust in Him. And this is what Isaiah's vision is intended to teach his people. Trust in the Lord, he says to them, forever, for the Lord is the rock of ages. We have trusted in Him and we have found him faithful. Now, through whatever storm or difficulty we may find ourselves passing, this is precisely the word that God brings to us as to the people of Isaiah's day, that God will see his people through, that there is really no question about the ultimate outcome. It's only a matter of time until faith is vindicated. Therefore, Isaiah says, trust in the Lord. Fading is the worldling's pleasure all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Let's pray together. Our blessed Lord, we thank you as we bow before you that you are such a God as this and greatly to be praised and worshipped and honored. We look forward to that day when, no longer through a glass darkly but face to face, we shall see you as you are and worship you as we should. And until then, we pray that we may keep our eyes on the Lord and fix our confidence in him. To this end, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be our portion this night and forevermore. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 
600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God. We'll be right back.